Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast, Why I Am a Hindu, from our 2018 programme. In his new and controversial book, Why I Am a Hindu, writer, Indian MP, and former UN Under Secretary General Shashi Tharoor offers a re-examination of one of the world's oldest and greatest religions, and considers its origins, key texts, and philosophical concepts, as well as the dangers to a pluralist secular India posed by new Hindu fundamentalists. This session is supported by the Asia New Zealand Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. Namaste indeed, and thank you very much, Michael, for those uh, kind and generous words. Uh, I hadn't noticed the statue of Lord Auckland, actually, because I was in Calcutta in 1969, and it was uh, expelled from there, so I really should try and make sure that I I see it before I I leave your lovely city. Um, Yes, it's a somewhat unusual topic to address here. It's um, um, uh, to talk to you about my book, Why I'm a Hindu, which... Um, I wrote partly because I'd always been wanting to write it, and there were bits and pieces of these concerns in a lot of my books going back over three decades, and partly because I felt the moral urgency to write it uh, in the present climate in India. Uh, The book is in many ways an attempt to me to come to terms with my own faith, the faith into which I was born, which I grew up in, which I read about, which I learned about. Um, and it, was, it is also a statement that rejects um, a version of the faith sought to be portrayed and, and, and promoted by those who are now in power in India. <coughs> the um, the um, original uh, sets of concerns I'd expressed over time about Hinduism can be traced for the handful amongst you here who've read my other books uh, in some of my earlier works. My novel, The Great Indian Novel, has a a, a, a fair amount about dharma, the concept of something which is far more than faith or religion, um, but but that by which we should live is dharma, and that that is there in in the novel. Uh, In my novel, Riot, which talks about the political violence uh, that prefigured the so-called Ram Janmabhumi movement and the eventual destruction of a disused 16th century mosque in northern India in the early 90s. I describe the rise of the Hindutva movement and their point of view. And in my book, India from Midnight to the Millennium, which is now 20 years old, published on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of India's independence, I have a few pages reflecting on my personal Hindu beliefs in the light of the destruction of that mosque five years previously. So uh, nothing terribly new about all the ideas in this book in the sense that they've all been prefigured in my earlier writing. So I was somewhat bemused to be accused of sort of having leapt opportunistically onto a Hindu message today because uh, an avowedly Hindu chauvinist party is in power in India. And my answer was, look, I mean, you know, I've been writing this stuff for 30 years. It, they, it goes well back before this particular party was a force in Indian politics. And it certainly goes back to well before I was involved in Indian politics myself. But inevitably, there is a, a, a political connection. And that's apparent in the latter part of this book. Uh, the first part, in a section that I somewhat presumptuously title My Hinduism, describes my faith and goes into 
extensive citations of ancient texts, the lessons of the great preachers and Mahatmas of Hinduism, notably uh, Adi Shankara, who lived about a thousand years ago and, and revived the faith dramatically, Swami Vivekananda, who um, preached largely in English uh, around the world, uh, the message of Hinduism the, in the 1890s, um, and, and, and really made it uh, a global force for the first time, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and of course, uh, the philosophers and exegetes who've written and thought about all of this. Um, and that's essentially the first ooh, 150 pages or so of the book. And then I've got a section called Political Hinduism, which summarizes the Hindutva philosophy, that is the ideology of the currently ruling BJP party in India. And I do so as far as I could, non-judgmentally, just by quoting uh, some of the more startling, but also some of the more basic pronouncements of its principal ideologues. A man called V.D. Savarkar, who wrote in the 1920s and came up with the concept of Hindutva, uh, M.S. Golwalkar, and subsequently uh, Deen Dayal Upadhyay, who headed the political party that was the forerunner of the present ruling party. And the final section of the book is called Reclaiming Hinduism, and it makes a case for taking back, as it were, Hinduism from the, um, from the, uh, the bigots, the, uh, the narrow-minded political Hindus who have transformed it into something which I claim it is not. And, and so the book, to that degree, does make a strongly political argument. Uh, I've been asked to speak to you all for uh, 20 minutes or so before getting into a dialogue. And what I thought I might do is begin by just reading um, a few, of the, a couple of the first pages of the book's first chapter that give you a bit of a flavor of how I, how I approach it. Um, let me just start at the very beginning. Why am I a Hindu? The obvious answer to this question is, of course, it's, that it's because I was born one. Most people have little choice about the faith they grew up with. It was selected for them at birth by the accident of geography and their parents' cultural moorings. The overwhelming majority of Hindus in the world were born Hindu. A small handful inspired by marriage, migration, or philosophical conviction have adopted the faith, usually by a process of conversion unknown to most Hindus. Unlike that small minority, I was never anything else. I was born a Hindu, grew up as one, and have considered myself one all my life. But what does being a Hindu mean? Many of us began having to interrogate ourselves in the late 1980s, when the world media first began to speak and write of Hindu fundamentalism. This was odd, because we knew of Hinduism as a religion without fundamentals. No founder or prophet, no organized church, no compulsory beliefs or rites of worship, no uniform conception of the good life, no single sacred book. My Hinduism was a lived faith, it was a Hinduism of experience and upbringing, a Hinduism of observation and conversation, not one anchored in deep religious study, though of course the two are not mutually exclusive. I knew a few mantras, just a few snatches of a couple of hymns, and practically no Sanskrit. My knowledge of Hindu sacred texts and philosophies came entirely from reading them in English translation. When I went to a temple, I prayed in an odd combination of English, Sanskrit, and my mother tongue, Malayalam, instinctively convinced that an omniscient God would naturally be multilingual. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> then I go a little bit. So uh, the first challenge, of course, was definitional. Um, the name Hindu itself denotes something less and more than a set of theological beliefs. In many languages, French and Persian amongst them, the word for Indian is Hindu. Originally, Hindu simply meant the people beyond the river Sindhu or Indus. But the Indus is now in Islamic Pakistan. And to make matters worse, the word Hindu did not exist in any Indian language till its use by foreigners gave Indians a term for self-definition. Hindus, in other words, called themselves by a label that they didn't invent themselves in any of their own languages, but adopted cheerfully when others began to refer to them by that word. Of course, many prefer a different term altogether, Sanatan Dharma, or eternal faith, which we will discuss later, in the book anyway, if not in my talk. Hinduism is thus the name that foreigners first applied to what they saw as the indigenous religions of India, a religion of India. It embraces an eclectic range of doctrines and practices, from pantheism to agnosticism, and from faith and reincarnation to belief in the caste system. But none of these constitutes an obligatory credo for a Hindu. There are none. We have no compulsory dogmas. This is, of course, rather unusual. A Catholic is a Catholic because he believes Jesus was the Son of God who sacrificed himself for man. A Catholic believes in the Immaculate Conception and the Virgin Birth, offers confession, genuflects in church, and is guided by the Pope and a celibate priesthood. A Muslim must believe that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. A Jew cherishes his Torah or Pentateuch and his Talmud. A Parsi worships at a fire temple. A Sikh honors the teachings of the Guru Granth Sahib above all else. There is no Hindu equivalent of any of these beliefs. There are simply no binding requirements to being a Hindu. Not even a belief in God. I grew up in a Hindu household. Our home always had a prayer room where paintings and portraits of assorted divinities jostled for shelf and wall space with fading photographs of departed ancestors, all stained by ash scattered from the incense burned daily by my devout parents. I've written before of how my earliest experiences of piety came from watching my father at prayer. Every morning after his bath, my father would stand in front of the prayer room wrapped in his towel, his wet hair still uncombed, and chant his Sanskrit mantras. But he never obliged me to join him. He exemplified the Hindu idea that religion is an intensely personal matter, that prayer is between you and whatever image of your maker you choose to worship. In the Hindu way, I was to find my own truth. And so it goes, and I talk about, I talk about um, a lot more than this as, 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 I, as I go along. Um, I, 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 I'll, I'll, before I close the book, I'll read one example of one of the things that attracted me a great deal about the belief systems of Hinduism, and that's from one of our oldest, in fact, our oldest sacred text, the Rig Veda, the original, the first of the Vedas, composed around 1500 BC. <coughs> and there is a creation verse which I quote fairly extensively in the book. But the last verse of the creation verse, the creation myth, says this. Who knows whence this creation had its origin? He, whether he fashioned it or whether he did not, he who surveys it all from the highest heaven, he knows. Or maybe even he does not know. 
Now that's 1,500 years ago. Can you imagine the skepticism, the spirit of philosophical inquiry, that the, the metaphysical approach that animated such an extraordinarily questioning faith? To my mind, seeing this faith reduced to bland certitudes and, and the bigotry and chauvinism of a political party has been a very deep betrayal of what the faith was all about. And, and so this book is both, as I said, an extensive exploration of the faith in, in itself and what kind of faith it is and what it stands for. And, and I do go into, into some depth into, into, uh, into its basic tenets and, and philosophies, but I hope as you've heard from my reading in a fairly accessible way because I'm not writing either for Sanskrit scholars or for theologians, I'm writing for people like you and me, and I try and keep it that way. But at the end of that, um, I, I do ask myself whether this faith, as I've described it, and, and, and as I'm pleased to say many, many readers in India have come to me saying, is also the faith that they have instinctively felt allegiance to without having been able to put words to it in quite the same way, whether this faith can or should be allowed to lend itself to what politically it has become. And it has become something quite gruesomely intolerant. Uh, we are seeing in the Hindutva ideology of the ruling party in India, a form of bigotry that's quite brazen and, and, and quite un-Hindu. <coughs> it is in many ways a sort of attempt to semitize the Hindu faith, to reduce its, its incertitude, its its spirit of inquiry, its openness, its eclecticism, its liberalism, for lack of a better word, uh, to something uh, much more narrow-minded, uh, really bringing down the soaring majesty of the metaphysics and inquiries of the Upanishads and the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita and the other ancient uh, Hindu texts into something much more like the, uh, the spirit of team identity of the British football hooligan. Uh, <laughs> And, and this attitude uh, is, is to me profoundly troubling, not just because I don't kind of identify with British football hooligans, but also because it seems to me to betray in spirit and substance the very faith in whose name it purports to speak. Um, it's very striking, for example, that one of the icons this movement claims is a man whom I hail and have hailed since my teenage years as um, a spiritual uh, mentor, guru, teacher, and that's Swami Vivekanandam I've mentioned already. Um, because when they take out of context a sentence like Vivekananda exhorting Hindus to be proud of being Hindu and reduce it to precisely, you know, we're Arsenal fans and if you're not, we'll hit you on the head, um, that completely overlooks what Vivekananda meant when he talked about the Hinduism that he wanted people to be proud of. He wanted people to be proud of the fact that Hinduism is a faith which acknowledged all faiths as equally valid. He wanted people to be proud of a Hinduism that did not try to impose a narrow view uh, on others. And his, 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 his lectures are quite remarkable. They're really worth reading. They were delivered in English. The most famous series of five short addresses uh, took place in Chicago at the World Parliament of Religions in 1893, when he was invited to speak for five minutes on Hinduism and got such a, an absolutely standing ovation that they kept calling him back and he ended up speaking five times, having been scheduled to speak only once. 
Um, and one of the things that he said there, of the many, many very interesting things he talked about, uh, he talked, for example, about a hymn he'd known from his childhood about how as various rivers flow from different directions and on different parts to the same sea, so also human beings take different routes to reach out to the same God, the same absolute. He talks about how religion can be compatible with science and how the, the principles of Hinduism are, are very scientific. He talks about how it would be wrong to impose a particular point of view on others. He says, you can't have one coat to fit John and Jack and Henry. And those are the actual names he uses because he's talking to an American audience. He says, uh, we acknowledge that different people need to, find, to cut their, their, their cloth according to their different sizes. And so our, our religion accepts all this. But we say in, in a phrase that he made very famous, ekam sat vapra there is only one truth, but the sages, the wise men, call it by many names. So he feels that when he speaks, for example, of God or the absolute, he is referring to the same God as the Christian, the Muslim, the Zoroastrian, the, 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 the Jew, and so on. And that's, that's his approach to Hinduism. And one of his sentences uh, in, that, in, in his famous address in, in Chicago um, said very simply that I'm proud to belong to a faith that has taught the world not just tolerance, but acceptance. And that stayed with me from the time I first read it as a teenager, and I've been thinking about it and dwelling on it ever since, because to my mind, it was a profound insight. You know, we all go to school and are taught that tolerance is a virtue. You know, history books speak about the tolerant king as a good person because he tolerates others. But when you really think about it, tolerance is actually a very patronizing idea. Because what does tolerance say? I mean, the tolerant person says, I have the truth. You are in error but I will magnanimously indulge you in your right to be wrong. <laughs> I mean, that really is what tolerance is all about, isn't it? Whereas acceptance is something more and something quite different. Acceptance says, I believe I have the truth. You believe you have the truth. I will respect your truth. Please respect my truth. And that is the fundamental essence of Hinduism. It says essentially that any way of worship is fine because ultimately your truth may be as valid or as invalid as mine. Why is it that there are these multiple, 333 million in some counts, names and forms of God that the Hindu can worship? Because the Hindu understands that no one's seen God. No one has any idea whether God is a he, a she, an it, a dot. Uh, whether God is dead, God is alive, whether God suffuses the entire universe. Of course, Hindu philosophy speaks not of God in a personal sense, but in terms of the absolute, the Brahman that suffuses the cosmos. But Hinduism, since it's a 4,000-year-old religion and had to make its adjustments along the way, realized that people needed something they could see, visualize, and worship. It wasn't enough just to think of the, the, the formless God, the uh, Nirguna Brahman, as it was called, and so they came up with a, a more accessible idea of God. But because no one idea of God was any more valid than any other, if you wanted to imagine God as a, as a pot-bellied person with an elephant head, that was your God, Ganesh, that was fine. You want to imagine God as an eight-armed woman riding a tiger, the goddess Durga, that's fine too. And by the same logic, if you want to imagine God as a suffering, bleeding man on a cross, that's equally acceptable. Because it's always of imagining something which none of us has seen or will see until we've left this planet. And so we really will have to go off and, 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 and find out 
which of our imaginings is a, 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 a more useful crutch to reach out to the divine. But that's all it is. It's a crutch. It's a way of helping us visualize in forms we can imagine uh, something which is otherwise unrealizable, for us to touch something which is otherwise untouchable, for us to attain something which is otherwise unattainable. And that is, I think, uh, at the heart of the eclecticism, liberalism, and, and, and for lack of a better word, tolerance that Hinduism embodies. Um, whereas the political philosophy of Hindutva uh, departs so fundamentally from these basic principal tenets of Hinduism that, to my mind, it, 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 it becomes something totally different, something unconnected to the Hinduism I know and have described, and it becomes indeed uh, instead a, a, a political ideology based on a communal identity which it's seeking to promote, very often in opposition to other identities, which in itself is a very un-Hindu uh, way of, of, of dealing with these issues. Now, I know there's a lot more to be said. I've been keeping an eye on the, on the clock so that we can have more time for a dialogue first with Michael and then with all of you. Um, I, I'd like to read to you from towards the end of the book, um, which um, is, as I've said, the section that I call Taking Back Hinduism, um, which reclaims the faith for this kind of view of it. And, and this is from the last few pages. In the 21st century, Hinduism has many of the attributes of a universal religion, a religion that is personal and individualistic, privileges the individual and does not subordinate one to a collectivity, a religion that grants and respects complete freedom to the believer to find his or her own answers to the true meaning of life, a religion that offers a wide range of choice in religious practice, even in regard to the nature and form of the formless God, a religion that places great emphasis on one's mind and values one's capacity for reflection, um, intellectual inquiry, and self-study, a religion that distances itself from dogma and holy writ, that is minimally prescriptive and yet offers an abundance of options, spiritual and philosophical texts, and social and cultural practices to choose from. In a world where resistance to authority is growing, Hinduism imposes no authorities. In a world of networked individuals, Hinduism proposes no institutional hierarchies. We have no Pope, we have no uh, Vatican. In a world of open source information sharing, Hinduism accepts all parts as equally valid. In a world of rapid transformations and accelerating change, Hinduism is adaptable and flexible, which is why it has survived for nearly 4,000 years. And a couple of paragraphs later, I say, Dr. Karan Singh, the former Maharaja of Kashmir, an Indian politician who's also a superbly readable scholar of Hindu philosophy, identifies five major principles in Hinduism that lend relevance and validity to the faith in today's world. At the risk of inadequate paraphrase, these are, according to him, the recognition of the unity of all mankind, epitomized in the Rig Vedic phrase, Vasudeva Kutumbakam, the world is one family, the harmony of all religions, epitomized in that Rig Vedic statement that was Swami Vivekananda's favorite, Ekam Satve Prabhoda Vadanti. The divinity inherent in each individual, transcending the social stratifications and hierarchies that have all too often distorted this principle in Hindu society. I talk about the caste system and how that practice is at variance with the essence of Hindu philosophical thought. 
the creative synthesis of practical action and contemplative knowledge, science and religion, meditation and social service in the faith, and finally, the cosmic vision of Hindu philosophy, incorporating the infinite galaxies of which the Earth is just a tiny speck. In Dr. Singh's own words, quote, such is the grandeur and mystery of the Atman, that's the universal soul, that it can move towards a comprehension of the unutterable mystery of existence. We who are children of the past and the future, of earth and heaven, of light and darkness, of the human and the divine, at once evanescent and eternal, of the world and beyond it, within time and in eternity, yet have the capacity to comprehend our condition, to rise above our terrestrial limitations, and finally to transcend the throbbing abyss of space and time itself. This, Dr. Singh says, is the message of Hinduism, and it's a message that can, and perhaps should, resonate throughout the world. Um, as I make this case, I say that, of course, um, I'm proud to offer such a religion to the world, conscious that Hinduism does not seek to proselytize, only to offer itself as an example that others may or may not choose to follow. Unlike the Abrahamic faiths, it manifests no desire to universalize itself, yet its tenets and values are universally applicable. But first, it must be revived and reasserted in its glorious liberalism, its openness and acceptance, its eclecticism and universalism in the land of its own birth. As the Hindu hymn from one of the Upanishads says, in words that resonate with meaning for every human being on the planet, Asatoma Sadgamaya, Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya, Mrityorma Amritamgamaya. Lead me from untruth to truth. Lead me from darkness to light. Lead me from death to immortality. Thank you. Sorry, while we go through the mundane business of taking the lectern away, perhaps Sasuji could explain how a politician and a leading politician can spend so much time churning out books. <laughs> By not sleeping enough, Michael, I fear. <laughs> uh, mind you, I confess uh, one, of my, one of the very few lines I'm happy to, to, uh, to quote plagiarize, ascribed to the original authors, actually by a now long-forgotten American humorist in the 1940s, who rather memorably said that I write faster than anybody who writes better, and I write better than anybody who writes faster. So I think I could borrow that as a credo as well. Mr. Mencken, is it? A.J. Liebling. You, you, you said in your address, and you, and you make the claim that Hinduism is tolerant. Doesn't every religion make that claim? But we have the add-on of the, of the external division. Catholicism wants to, to turn all Indians into Catholics. So did the Methodists. But we're all tolerant, surely. Yes and no. Um, other faiths are very set in their conviction that theirs is the only true path to salvation and to the realization of God. If you don't follow their faith, in their eyes, you are damned to eternal hellfire. Uh, we don't even really believe in hell because the existence of hell would imply that there is a place where God is not. And that's not possible because God is everywhere or he wouldn't be God or there wouldn't be a God, whether it's a he, she, it, whatever. So the whole idea 
that there can be a place from which God is absent is foreign to Hindu philosophy. And therefore, since the Brahman, the, the, the cosmic force that, that suffuses all, all creation, is everywhere, um, even evil is merely a way station to good. Uh, untruth is perhaps to be found on the path to truth, and so on. So there are no absolute evils. Uh, and, and the idea that um, because you don't choose to follow our faith, you will somehow be damned, your soul will suffer, is not a Hindu idea. So that's the, the extraordinary difference between Hinduism and most other faiths, certainly pretty much every other faith of which I know, which is that while they believe they have found the right path, uh, Hinduism is unburdened by the conviction that he is embarked on the right path that nobody else, uh, that all the others are unlucky enough to miss out on. Uh, for us, your path is as good as ours. In studying Hinduism, though, have you come across gurus and, and people in the past who have argued that perhaps Hinduism is the only true way and, and in a sense, politicised the proselytization of Hinduism? Well, uh, I've got to answer that in two ways. Philosophically, the argument about Hinduism is that because it embraces all possible ways and because it rejects none, to that degree, yes, it is, if you like, the best way forward because it permits everything else to be, to be, to be uh, embraced within it. So to that degree, a certain amount of philosophical chauvinism is possible. But I think your question relates also to the political use of Hinduism, which in fact is not anchored in philosophy or religion. It's, it's actually a somewhat unfortunate term, this Hindutva, mm -hmm. because it gives a religious coloring to what is basically a purely political ideology. Um, Hindutva, the concept of Hindutva was born in the 1920s, when very similar ideas were sweeping Europe and elsewhere in the form of fascism. The idea that you could organize and militarize a people around a very sort of deep sense of its own identity. And the Hindutva philosophy was sort of India's version of that kind of fascist thinking. It was about, uh, in fact, in, in the original founder of the, the, the ideology, V.D. Savarkar, even sometimes uses the word race. He speaks of the Hindu race. Mm -hmm. Race was a very fashionable term in those days. Um, but, um, but when he speaks of the, of the race, you can see where he's coming from. It's, he himself was not a very religious man. But he and of wanted course, the to irony was that Adolf Hitler or the Nazis were borrowing Hindu motifs for their organization. The swastika, well. for example, yes. which is a good luck uh, symbol in Hinduism and became the symbol of the, of the, of the, of the Third Reich. You actually got onto politics, and I was going to do that a little bit on, but we're, we're now, and as a somewhat secular 21st century science-believing person, I find it extraordinary that we have a president of the United States who proclaims God is great along with America, but clearly doesn't practice any of his religious beliefs. And India has a, a, a prime minister who really does seem to practice his belief, whether you like it or not. Um, he is a, a genuine Hindu in a sense, I would say. But as a, one politician, I, I mean, it's a easy shot for you, I guess, being in the Congress party and in opposition. Is any of this political declaration of faith and religion real, or is it just sort of political posturing? Um, <laughs> it's a tough one to answer, because, you know, you, never did it, of you can't get into the mind of a person 
uh, and, and allege that his convictions are insincerely held. I mean, that, I think, is, is, is an it's unfair thing. Trump, to, think. Because, well, it's easy Trump, I think. It's easy enough. But certainly in the Indian context, I would argue that there are, um, if you like, there's the sort of cultural Hinduism that many in the BGP are very comfortable with, the rituals, the temple going, the wearing of, of, of religious marks on the forehead uh, or the sacred thread across their bodies or the immersion in the Ganga for, uh, that is, the river Ganges to wash away their sins. And all of these sort of symbolic type things which I would describe as cultural manifestations of Hinduism they're quite comfortable with. And indeed, it's no accident, just this week, the Prime Minister of India was in Nepal, which is uh, the only other major Hindu uh, majority country, and uh, conducted no fewer than four temple visits on his two days there, which one might see as sort of pointing out indirectly to the Nepalese people the religio-cultural affinity the two countries share. So you could almost see it as a form of diplomacy rather than one of ostentatious religion. That's why I don't want to be cynical about what Mr. Modi is saying or doing, but I do want to point to the various uses that overt practice of religion can, can actually be put to. Fair enough. Well, though, what did you make of Mr. Trudeau's visit through India? He seemed to be more Indian than Indian. Certainly in his choice of costumes, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, here's Michael formally dressed in Indian clothes, and here I am in Indian casual. So uh, this is what happens to us. When, uh, cultural appropriation, I don't mind at all. Actually, I thought he had a, he had a wonderful... I paid good rupee for it. I'm sure you did. <laughs> and, and in terms of Trudeau, I thought he had a wonderful you know, costume designer or, or <laughs> whatever, because he and his family were picture perfect. I mean, they could have walked in and out of an Indian edition of Vogue. Oh. Uh, but, <laughs> the, but the Mr. Modi the visit didn't seem to like him. Sorry? Mr. Modi didn't seem to like him. Well, I, the pro problem is that, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Trudeau's party has been giving aid and comfort to some rather unsavory elements in the Indian diaspora who have been, unlike, for example, the Sikhs of New Zealand or Australia, uh, the Sikhs of Canada who belong to an earlier vintage a little more removed from contemporary Indian realities, have fallen prey to a form of very, very unpleasant uh, extremism which has actually con you know, conducted airline bombings, killing large numbers of people and terrorist activities um, in the state of Punjab in the 1980s, and people who identified themselves overtly in support of such activities uh, seem to enjoy the patronage of Mr. Trudeau's Liberal Party, not because Mr. Trudeau is knowingly encouraging terrorism, but because in terms of Canadian domestic politics, that seemed to them to be a good bunch of people to support. So, for example, the Sikh Chief Minister of India's Punjab, mm. Amrinder Singh, at one point refused to receive the Canadian Defence Minister, alleging that he had made statements sympathetic to the terrorist cause. Now, can you imagine the Defence Minister of a NATO ally <laughs> being denied an appointment because he had, had uh, seemingly given support to uh, a terrorist movement. It's, a, it's an, appalling, an appalling thought. And Mr. Trudeau, as head of the Liberal Party, obviously has to face up to that. Uh, in the end, he did have a closed-door meeting. Well, Mr. Trudeau did have a closed-door meeting yeah. with the same chief minister. So that's, that's it. But we're going far, far away, away from Hinduism, I'm afraid, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned in, in your last part of the reading the business of, um, of caste, and, and you've said in your book that it's, it's not really Hinduism. And I noticed in some of the reviews, um, 
particularly one in the Hindu, that was a bit sceptical of, of the sincerity of, of, of your defence of Hinduism and, and, and what you were saying about caste. I mean, they were essentially arguing that um, in a Hindu system, the, the educated public watches on silently as the poorer or the weaker members of society have to to take the injustices that are inflicted on them. Uh, yeah, in fact, I don't deny that. I, I think if you read the book, you'll discover that I've been actually fairly uh, open about acknowledging the evils and the wrongs, while stressing, however, that the, uh, as I've explained Hinduism, there's this vast, I describe it as, as a vast library with lots of books in it, none of which actually ever goes out of print. So you can pick and choose from the books which ones you wish to read and base your Hinduism on. And there are texts that have language that is blood-curdlingly misogynist or, 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 or casteist. But there's also texts and stories that completely repudiate those versions. Now, don't blame the religion. The religion's giving you a choice. If you, as a Hindu, choose to anchor yourself on either misogynist language or, I mean, and you can find misogynist language in the Bible too, uh, but the ancient texts often give you uh, elements that you can choose to hang your prejudices on, that's your choice. And I think it's unfair to blame the religion for it because the religion offers you alternative explanations. My book has, for example, um, a number of examples to substantiate my case that the caste system or the idea of any unequal distribution of, of, um, of, of authority or privilege in society is anathema to those who described the fact that we are all united by a common soul, uh, whereas, for example, in Christianity, uh, each body has a soul. Um, in Hinduism, the soul has a body. The soul is what's permanent. It occupies temporarily your body uh, for as long as it needs to save a particular purpose on this earth, and then it discards the body and moves on to another form. The soul is permanent, and, and that soul is shared by all humanity. Um, there is an episode involving the great sage Adi Shankara, who's, who took this extraordinary pilgrimage, the length and breadth of the Indian subcontinent over a thousand years ago. Uh, and he's walking and, and, and he comes across this outcast, this uh, Chandala, as he's called. And his, form, uh, his followers say to the outcast rather brusquely, you know, get out of the great sage's way. And the outcast refuses to budge. And he stands there and he says, why should I move for you? Is not the Atman within me, the soul, the same as the Atman within you. And the great sage prostrates himself before the outcast and says, I bow to you as my teacher because you have understood and distilled the essence of my teachings far better than the so-called high-born students I have here. And that is an example of the kind of message that Hindu religion would give that says the caste system is irrelevant. There are many other stories in the book that make the same point. It's kind of interesting. Whilst we get... Um the microphone set up, we can take some questions, but um, actually the same sort of parallels exist in the Bible as well. The, mm -hmm. the, the poor are, uh, are wiser than the, the rich, etc., etc. And after an hour of fascinating Hinduism, I'm thinking of signing up. So thank you very much. Get your conversion certificate. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.